Hey there, I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. And I'm Sean. And we're the Vertigo Guys. We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review some Vertigo comics, starting with the big three, Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. And today we are looking at Preacher issues 13 through 16. Alright, this is an arc that the covers of the original Vertigo publications had the Hunter's arc title. That's not included anywhere in the comics, and I'm not really sure where it came from. Yeah, we don't know why it's called that, folks. Well, a variety of people are kind of hunting each other in a number of situations. I sort of decided after the fiasco last week that I wasn't going to stretch to give myself another nickname, and I'm pretty happy with that decision. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Mistakes were made. Yeah. Let's just move past it. Let's just move past it. All right, well... Let's start with Preacher number 13, Came a Pale Rider, written by Garth Ennis, with art by Steve Dillon. We've got a cover by Glenn Fabry, and on this cover, we have our first sight of a new character. Well, actually, it's our first sight of three new characters. That is true. Some of them are pretty major characters, and the one that's closest to the front right now is the character that we will learn is Hair Star. Yeah, he is a very ugly man with a scarred-up eyeball and a bald head. And accompanying him are Hoover and Featherstone wearing matching outfits. Yeah, they're all wearing white suits with red ties, except that Featherstone doesn't have a tie, just a red blouse. Yeah, Featherstone is a blonde woman, and Hoover is an African-American man. Yeah, and Star has a very unique character design, which I think is pretty cool. He's got his five-pointed star pointing in at the center of his eye, and he's bald and looks very menacing indeed. Yeah, he's not a happy man. He hasn't had a happy life, and things really don't get great for him <laughs> from here on out either. It's a little strange to be introduced to this character on the cover of the issue, but it is a pretty cool piece of art. Indeed. Okay, so page one of Preacher number 13 shows us the burned-out mansion at Angelville with skeletons lying around. The burned bodies have been, have been stripped to skeletons. And looking over this scene, we find the Saint of Killers, our immortal cowboy nemesis. Now, this is the first time that we've seen the Saint of Killers since issue number four. And it'll be the last time that we see him in this story arc. Right, so this is just a reminder that he's out there. The last time we saw him, if I'm not mistaken, was when Jesse basically told him to get lost using the Word of God, and he was forced to do so. Yeah, in an issue titled Standing Tall. Right. And so he's still looking for Jesse, but he's a few steps behind. Yeah, and then he sees the carnage that was wrought at Angelville. He says, Well, preacher, not bad for a beginner. Speaking of Jesse doing not bad, we then cut to a hotel room where he and Tulip are having lots of sex. Yeah, specifically we see the, the hall of the hotel room where what looks like a bellboy in one of those really old-fashioned outfits comes up and he says they've been getting a lot of complaints about the noise. And Jesse says, yeah, you're going to get a whole lot more. I was you, I'd just ignore him. And he gives the guy a big stack of money and makes him go away and then... We go to the inside of the hotel room where, where we get some, some good nudity and, uh, <laughs> and Jesse and Tulip going at it. Some equal opportunity nudity. 
plenty of Jesse's ass on this page. Yeah, yeah, we got Jesse nudity and we got Tulip nudity, and they're having pizza and champagne and sex in a hotel room, which is really the way to do it. I mean, they yeah, and with a couple here. of pizza boxes strewn around, I think we can take the understanding that this has been going on for a little while. Right, yeah. Although, it is not the way to eat pizza. You see uh, plates with, uh, with knives and forks oh. piled on the floor, which implies that they've been eating pizza with a knife and fork. Some optimal pizza experience? That's, yeah, that's not how to do it. Not the ultimate pizza That's experience. not the ultimate pizza experience. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe that means they've had a couple of meals in the hotel room. I don't know. Yeah, so we mentioned that the bellboy was given a bunch of money. Notably that he, uh, Jesse did not use the word here. He has money to burn, apparently, that he bribes this guy with. Yes, that's true. They're staying in apparently a pretty nice hotel, judging by the bellboy's uniform. And they're drinking champagne, and they, they seem to have plenty of money. So that brings us to a palatial, hedonistic mansion, where we find a guy on the phone. He's talking to a guy named Bob about a suitcase full of heroin that Bob had promised him. Yeah. You swore on your balls and your oral virginity would show up this afternoon promptly at three. Well, guess what? It didn't. Right, and as we get our first look at this character, whose name is Jesus de Sad, could be Jesus, I'm going to go with Jesus. That's how I read it. He is on a bed surrounded by two naked women, a naked dude, and a rabbit. And the rabbit is eating a carrot. And he's talking on a fairly old-fashioned telephone. Yes. And the art on this page makes it look kind of like Desaad has only one leg. Oh. You know, I didn't ever have that problem. I didn't have a problem with that. I didn't see it that way. Okay. Well, but, his uh, other leg is out of sight anyway. Yeah. Yeah, Steve Dillon just sort of didn't bother to draw it. And this is the title page where we get the title, Came a Pale Rider. It's not going to make a lot of sense. The title? Yeah. Okay. Nothing's really going to... I mean, I guess the Jesus decide is pale, and he does ride. I guess. So he demands that Bob stop making excuses and bring the heroin, because he's having a great big party with over 500 of California's most depraved and decadent, he says. Yeah. So he hangs up the phone and says that Bob is a dull little man, and his butler, Harcourt, comes up. Mm-hmm. And Harcourt is providing, thanks to the courtesy of the man from the zoological gardens, Desaad's next sexual partner? Which looks to be an armadillo. Right. So, yeah, here we're getting the first indications that in addition to just being an enthusiastic sexual explorer and a flaunter of society's rules, Jesus Desaad is also into some not-so-harmless stuff. Mm-hmm. Bugging his way through the petting zoo is, is not cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> not, not all right. Yeah, so we see here that he's filthy rich and has basically no... draws no lines on his sexual pursuits. And he also loves heroin. Right. Or at least he wants to be friends with people who do. Right. At least he wants to be a reliable provider of heroin to people who want to use it. Exactly. Exactly. So we now cut back to Jesse and Tulip. 
And they yes. seem to be mm -hmm. in the hotel room. We cut away from his brand of decadence to a completely different brand of decadence as Jesse and Tulip are enjoying a small hotel bathtub together. Yeah, and speaking of decadence, they talk about a little bit about the fact that Tulip is smoking again now. Yeah, and a moment later they mention that she's not a vegetarian anymore either. Right. Jesse lights their cigarettes with the fuck communism lighter, and she asks him about it. He says, John Wayne gave it to my daddy at Quezon. Yeah, that is literally true. Yeah, and we're going to see a little bit more about that shortly. And hey, that's another Quezon reference in about two episodes, right? Yeah, that's right. Last week we had Frank of the Newcastle crew who had fought at Quezon. Yeah. Jesse chooses this moment to ask, what was it like getting shot through the head? It wasn't really like anything. I didn't feel it at the time. I just heard this bang before everything went black, then white. And then he was standing there in front of me. The good fucking lord. They both agree that it was a real dick move on God's part to let Tula be killed to try to make friends with Jesse by bringing her back. Yeah, and they also talk about the fact that perhaps he is scared of Jesse. He seems to be avoiding confrontation with him in any case. Right. Back in Angelville, he sort of arranged to try to bribe Jesse to give up his hunt. But at the same time, he did it in such a way as to never interact with him directly. Tulip raises two possibilities. One is that he's not as powerful as he'd like to be, or would like people to think that he is. And the second is that he is really keen for Jesse to think he's a good guy. Right. And Jesse says that either way, it shows they got him on the run. Right. It was clear in the Angelville story that God really wants to be loved by people. Right. And then they change the subject to somebody that Jesse called recently, Cassidy. Yeah, they mentioned that they've had a few weeks off. Mm -hmm. So this is, it's been a little while since the previous story arc. Yeah, they've been on vacation, so to speak. And Jesse just called Cassidy. Well, I can't come to the fork and phone at the minute, because I'm pissed out of me skullet fisted sisters on Devizadero. You can leave a message after the beep, you bollocks. Beep! <laughs> I completely forgot he was in San Francisco. More than likely he has, too. And we see here that Tulip has some misgivings about Cassidy. Right. She doesn't think that he takes her seriously. And we've seen before that when the three of them go out together, Tulip tends to head back for the hotel pretty early. Yeah. So this brings us to the next page where we actually meet... Hoover and Featherstone. They eat horses, don't they? Who? The French. So I'm told. It turns out that their boss at Puissant is French, and that's why Hoover is idly speculating about it. Yeah, Hoover has a little prejudice against French people here, and Featherstone tries to encourage him to just go ahead and call the guy a motherfucker. Featherstone! It's just a word, Hoover. If you want to call Poisson a motherfucker, I'm sure the Lord won't mind. Bonjour! <laughs> right, Poisson appears with a friendly greeting for his underlings. And he comments on the work that Featherstone has been doing for him. Rustling up the local mercenaries, basically. And he's disappointed to learn that so few of them are believers. In the Grail, Featherstone, we prefer to employ Christians when we can. And he then mentions that... 
they have more assistants arriving today. A gentleman named Star. Unbosh, says Poussin. Right. Hoover asks Bosch, and Featherstone replies, German. And Hoover mutters, a kraut. So he apparently isn't too keen on German people either. He's equally uneasy about all Europeans, I guess. <laughs> it seems that way. So this is a good, effective scene. You know, it's a good way to meet Featherstone and Hoover and get a little bit of their personalities. I also like that basically right on cue, just as Jesse was saying that he feels better having Angelville off his back and Grandma, a new threat basically appears in the, on the very next page, in the very next panel. Right, their rotating pool of enemies is not reducing substantially. And this page also establishes that they are in San Francisco as well. So we know that that's where the good guys are, and now we know that that's where the bad guys are. Right, and the last time we heard from the Grail was way back in the hints at the end of the first story arc. Here we're starting to see a little bit of what that organization is about. Yes, indeed. But for the moment, we head across town to Fisted Sister. Apparently, Jesse's impression was accurate insofar as that's where Cassidy is, because Jesse and Tulip are now searching the incredibly loud metal bar for Cassidy. Yeah, this looks more like punk to me, but... Yeah, I think a... you're probably right about that. But in any case, it's an obnoxious band singing a song called All Scottish People Are Bastards. <laughs> well, this is a band called The Big Noise Generator, who I did look at that up there, a fictional band. <laughs> yeah, well... In, in any case, I don't like their song. <laughs> Fair enough. They find Cassidy in the mosh pit with literally a pair of tits on his head. <laughs> yep, there's, there's a lady riding on him piggyback, and she falls off <laughs> as he, in his excitement, sees Tulip and Jesse. Right, and then Cassidy and Jesse greet each other with, Motherfucker! Yeah, that's the same greeting that Cassidy and Cy had. Back in the New York's Finest story arc, right? Yeah, that's right. So they're keeping they're keeping Psy alive in spirit, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and also, remember, Psy and Cassidy just had that incredibly casual hostility to each other in all of their interactions. And so the first thing that Jesse says after greeting his friend is, You smell like you wiped your ass on your scalp! <laughs> that's right. Now, he calls Tulip Turnip and says... I've come to suck your bloody blood, which she does not like. Right. And then they try to have a conversation, but the big noise generator is living up to their name. They're unable to talk in the crowded bar. And so as they head out, Jesse shouts, I'll buy you more. I'm rich. I robbed a bank. So out in the alley, Cassidy summons a guy with a lot of piercings on his face to take a picture of them. Yeah, and Tulip is already ready to call it a night, as you sort of alluded to before. Yeah, now, Jesse wants to walk her back if she's going to go back to the hotel. But she tells him, I've got Jody's forty-five in my purse. And this is an early hint at something we're going to see over and over in their relationship. Which is Jesse being protective and Tulip feeling, quite rightly, that she can handle herself. Yeah. Well, in any case, before she goes... The fellow with the piercings takes a picture of them, and they all smile and say, Our space. Our space does not appear in this story arc. This seems to just be kind of random. Yeah, well, that's the word that they use to make them smile. Guess they like him more than cheese, which proves that they're not French like Poussin. 
<laughs> right. They're like more than horses, too. <laughs> so this brings us to the introduction of Hare Star. He is standing outside the airport in his iconic white suit with a black trench coat look. Right, Puisan has a car waiting, and they invite him in. Featherstone and Hoover are also present. But as soon as he's seated in the car, Star has some news about Featherstone and Hoover. Mr. Poisson, are you aware that these two are part of conspiracy within the Grail itself? A plan to destroy what it has protected for 2,000 years? Poisson, Featherstone, and Hoover are all equally terrified that this has just been said. And that's when Star shoots Poisson in the face. My plan, as a matter of fact. Now, you couldn't actually shoot a guy in the face in the closed quarters of a car and then coolly deliver, you know, a badass line. You and everyone around you would be deafened. Oh yeah, guns are loud. This is a valid point. <laughs> but this is some of logic here. <laughs> Indeed it is. Featherstone and Hoover are pretty surprised to learn that Star is their patron, the guy who recruited them into the secret conspiracy within the conspiracy. Right, there's the Grail, which is an incredibly powerful secret society, but Hare is, part, is the leader, in fact, of a conspiracy within the Grail, a conspiracy to save the Grail from itself. Right, and he's not very happy about meeting Old Father Daronique's right-hand man here at a public airport. Yeah, although basically they just got into a limo before anyone could see who they were. He might be a little overly cautious there, but... In any case, he has a picture of a 12-year-old Jesse Custer on him. Right, an individual that it turns out that the Grail has been studying recently. And he's... Starry's not really sure why, but he's taking an interest in the fact that the Grail is taking an interest. I want to know why this individual only became important to us last year. I found this in the files of the San Marie, and it's a picture of Jesse in 1978. He then adds, and I also want to know where I can find a very experienced whore. Yeah, that's the sort of thing you should really uh, take care of yourself. <laughs> as, as we will find as out. he will learn. <laughs> so we cut back to Jesse and Cassidy. I really wanted to say Tulip there. It's hard. It's difficult. But Tulip's not there. She's right. not there. Tulip is hanging out with Jesse Custard. <laughs> Jesse Custard. Oh, it sounds delicious. Quinn and Jerry's good on this. Putting King of the Southwest. Anyway. <laughs> Jessity Custard. Yeah, so Jess and Cass are at a bar, and Jesse is paying back the money Cassidy loaned him. It turns out that they did, in fact, rob a bank using the word of God. Yeah, and he explains that he basically had two reasons for abusing the power in a way that is out of character for him. First of all, we had a bad time in the South, and Tulip got it much worse than I did. I figured she could use a little high life. And second of all, fuck it. Yeah, so this does represent a shift in Jesse's priorities from the responsibility to your fellow man speech that he gave back in New York. Right. He's still generally pretty honorable about the word and how often he uses it, mm -hmm. and he tries not to over-rely on it. But he's not above using it for his own convenience now and then. I think post-Angelville, he's taken on more of a responsibility to judge the people in situations he encounters and considered himself more of an authority unto himself. 
And so being above the authority of to say not rob a bank is kind of part of that. Well, yeah, and, and this, this sort of brings us to the first example of something we're going to see throughout this arc, which is Jesse has a sort of everyman sensibility. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that that means is that he doesn't mind if, you know, a bank that's insured by the federal government gets, you know, loses a couple of thousand dollars. Right. He would never hurt somebody who doesn't deserve it, but he doesn't mind committing sort of victimless crime. Yeah, yeah, that's one way to put it. I'm glad to see that absolute power is corrupt and absolutely, Cassidy says. Yeah, later on he'll mention that he doesn't mind if bad stuff befalls the guests at Jesus Desad's party because mm-hmm. they own half the West Coast. Right. So it's again with that everyman sensibility. He doesn't mind if some trouble befalls them because, you know, they have it so good in the first place. They're they're the man. So he's a little bit of a class warrior also. Yeah, something like that. At this point, Jesse and Cassidy notice that Laurel and Hardy are on the TV and talk for a minute about how they're both big fans of Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jesse strongly feels that Laurel and Hardy had better plots, but less style than Charlie Chaplin. And so you can tell if a person likes Laurel and Hardy, it means, you know, they're more into substance over style. Right. And if somebody doesn't like Laurel and Hardy, they ain't worth a damn. Right. And it's very modern pop culture critic, the way that he overthinks Laurel and Hardy. But then the barmaid changes the channel to a football game, and as Jesse asks her to change it back, several large men arise from their table. No, we don't like Laurel and fucking Hardy. What, do we look like we're still in the fucking fifth grade or something? Definite style over content type. Guys, we really don't want any trouble here. I think you're in the wrong job, love. Right, so the big guy says that... Dressing like a minister is not going to save Jesse, but Jesse replies, I get through with you, boy. You're going to wish your daddy pulled out early. And a Donnybrook ensues. It's a Donnybrook because it has an Irish guy in it. Fair call. We have the barmaid on the phone calling the police as the first big guy that we saw, the one with the handlebar mustache. Is that a handlebar mustache? What do you call that kind of mustache? Yeah, that's a handlebar mustache. Yeah, as he's lying unconscious on the bar. But somebody manages to gore Cassidy with a broken bottle. Well, we've seen before that Cassidy is... <laughs> he's supernaturally tough and apparently not the best bar fighter. Yeah, he's not a very good fighter. He just He's just very durable. I mean, this is basically the same thing that happened way back in the bar fight in their first arc when he got stabbed in the eye with a pocket knife. Yeah, and this is gonna this is gonna come up again, like all the way to the very end of the series. Cassie can't really fight. <laughs> <laughs> and just as that first time, he immediately grabs the guy to tear his throat out and, and drink his blood to heal up that wound. And again, Jesse intervenes using the word of God to stop him. Yeah, he did it once and then promised he'd never do it again, and then he did it again and promised that he'd never do it again. And here he's doing it a third time. But Cassidy doesn't seem that pissed off about it this time. This time he seems pretty cool with it. Bye, fuck it. Sure, it'll heal up in no time. And I already ate this morning. So when they get outside, Cassidy is singing, and Jesse mentions that he started that fight for him, 
because it looked like he could do to take out some frustration. Ah, you were right. I buried my girlfriend last week. And that's it. We end on Cassidy's face in shadow as he says that, and Jesse looking shocked. That is a pretty cool panel. It's a cool panel. It is a bit of an anticlimactic end to the issue. You know, we've had much more shocking ends to issues throughout this series. The fact that a character we've never met died last week is not really a huge deal. Yeah, but it is the thing that will motivate the rest of the arc going forward. This issue has been a little bit of a vacation, and now we're getting back into some narrative momentum. Yeah, uh, this is a very exposition-heavy issue, and frankly, the next issue is very exposition-heavy as well. So you could be forgiven if this was your jumping-in point into Preacher for maybe being a little, a little unhappy with the lack of, the lack of action, but. The writing is really solid, as always, and we've got the introductions of a couple of really awesome characters. So, all in all, I think Preacher 13, solid. All right. And, you know, they talk all the time on Jay and Miles explaining the X-Men about how between arcs the X-Men always go back to practicing in the danger room. I guess in Preacher it's Jesse and Cassidy get drunk and start a brawl. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's, that's their danger room. They take a room... And they fill it with danger. <laughs> All right. So, Preacher number 14, Boys Will Be Boys. Who wrote this issue, Sean? Why, it was Mr. Garth Ennis. Oh, who drew it? Steve Dillon. Awesome. It sounds like it'll be pretty good then. So the cover of this issue is by Glenn Fabry, as usual. And it has a very Irish-looking Cassidy hiding under a bed, while a very not Bob and Freddy-like Bob and Freddy uh, look kind of rough. Yeah. They just don't look much like Bob and Freddy. Who are characters we haven't actually introduced you to yet, readers, but, uh, uh, yeah. or listeners. But yeah, well, yeah, once again, brand new characters on the, on the cover. It's, it's interesting that they choose to do that so often because Fabry's art is so hyper-realistic and Steve Dillon's art is pretty comic booky. Yeah, Steve Dillon's art, I think Steve Dillon draws faces much better than almost anyone else in the biz. But uh, terrifically expressive faces in this series, yeah. Yeah, but it is not hyper-realistic the way that Glenn Fabry is. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like every time they introduce a new character, they make sure that we get a Fabry take on what they look like, what they would look like if you met them on the street. Yeah, for sure. I also want to mention here that this cover has on it a drawing of a cat, and it is a very good drawing of a cat. All right. There's also a drawing of David Bowie. Oh, yeah, that's what that is. Way up in the corner there, almost off panel. That's Bowie. Yeah, we've got a miserable-looking Cassidy hiding under the bed while Bob and Freddy look on. They apparently can see him because Bob is reaching for his gun, and his girlfriend's David Bowie poster is on the wall, as is the cat. He's just totally surrounded. The cat's not on the wall. The cat's on the bed. Oh, you're right. Cat's not on the wall. Cat's <laughs> just not on the wall. But it is in the room, and it's a green-eyed, creepy-looking cat, and it's a pretty good drawing. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, Bob and Freddy, Cassidy's enemies. The cat, also not to be trusted. <laughs> also fuck Cassidy's fucking enemy, for sure. All right. So, page one of Preacher number 14 introduces us to Bob and Freddy. 
you've probably been listening to us talk about Bob and Freddy for the last five minutes and thinking, who the fuck is Bob and Freddy? Assholes. Right, and so our first panel gives us the business card of Bob Glover, Freddy Al, sexual investigators. Yeah, and Freddy is tinkering with what seems to be a blowjob-giving device that he is trying to invent, which has interchangeable wigs and involves a mannequin head. Right. <laughs> Says that he uh, will never get it working, but he likes to have something to tinker with. We learn from their conversation that Bob worked as a male prostitute for 22 years to get the funds to start what he calls the first-ever sex detective agency. I'm not really sure what a sexual investigator is. I think maybe it's funnier as a phrase than a concept. I don't think Garth Ennis is sure what a sexual investigator is. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think sexual investigators is a funny title, and it doesn't really matter how the sex works into the investigations. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But they, they, both, they both sure know their sex. And apparently, <laughs> Bob still works as a rent boy in slow months. Right, but Bob points out that he has maintained his oral virginity, which confirms that this is the same Bob that Desaad was talking to last issue. The Bob who's supposed to find the missing suitcase full of heroin. You know, I did not put that together quite that fast, but you are, you are correct. And also, so their conversation turns to Jesus Desaad, and Freddy says, I heard he likes little kids, Bob. And Bob says, that's just a fucking rumor. But it is foreshadowing of a horrible thing we will find out. Right. Meanwhile, back at Cassidy's dead girlfriend Greta's place, Jesse and Cassidy are hanging out. Did you say Jessidy? Did I say Jessidy again? You might have. <laughs> the man makes such good custard. I keep trying to forget about him and his custard during this comic book. Yeah. So Jesse and Cassidy are hanging out. Tulip is not there. And... Jesse asks if it's okay if he asks what actually happened to Greta. Sticking fucking needles in her arm. She apparently died of an overdose not long ago. It's for bloody Egypt's that stuff. I should know. And they have a little conversation about how the main thing that came between Cassidy and Greta was that he couldn't handle watching her get old. And she couldn't handle watching him stay young. Right, they apparently met at a Grateful Dead concert and were together for about 30 years before they broke up. Yeah, and he says maybe he should stop, he should learn to stop making friends because he just has to watch him die. And clearly that would apply to Jesse as well, mm -hmm. but he says he's just too insecure. And then Jesse goes on a little rant about how he hates insecure and generally the concept of shrinks. Well, uh, so that's interesting, uh, and this continues the kind of everyman idea. I don't know if I think Jesse actually hates the idea of shrinks. Okay. What he hates is pop psychology. Okay. And he's perfectly justified in that. If he was being a sort of anti-intellectual type and, you know, oh, I don't care for psychologists, they have an advanced degree, then, then I would be against it. But no, what he's actually against is sort of do-it-yourself, you know, stupid book psychology. And the idea that Everything reflects insecurity as part of that. Yeah, and I think also Jesse rejects the idea that traditionally masculine traits are reflective of some psychological complex or, well, insecurity. 
Right. He well, he likes masculinity, and this is definitely he's definitely a character who's going to engage with the ideas of masculinity and what they mean over and over. I should probably also mention that on this page, as he said, we get a hint here that Cassidy used to be into heroin, not the first one. Yes, that's right. And before we move on, one other thing is that this page has a drawing of a cat on it. It is an, <laughs> it is an okay drawing of a cat. This is a very stylized cat, as it's just like the, the whiskers and the eyes over sort of a black face. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so on the next page, we find out that Cassidy shits. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. Despite being a vampire, he still shits. Yeah. And he's apparently either really good at it or really not good at it, depending on <laughs> your definitions. Well, I guess that's not terribly surprising because he still eats. He needs to have some blood, but uh, I've understood that he can basically get all the blood he needs from eating rare steaks. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I'm pretty sure he says that. So the cat hisses at him, and he tries to kick it, which isn't how you should treat a cat. But in so doing, he accidentally kicks a hole in the wall, and they find a little safe. Right. Now, Cassidy thinks that with his strength, he can probably just rip the front off. But, unfortunately, he's the one who taught Greta to use explosives, and the safe is rigged with a bomb. If they open it, it'll blow up. So they have to get the combination, which they realize is on the cat's collar, so now they have to catch the cat. Yeah. Jesse tries ordering it to come with the word of God, but it doesn't speak American. Right, and this is actually the first time you find out, I think, that if you hear the word and don't understand it, you're immune. Yes, indeed. Now, I wonder if he used the word of God on an animal and was using a word that they had been trained to understand, if they would have no choice but to obey. That actually does make sense. We haven't seen that yet, right? Right. Oh, this is a pretty good... Look at that hissing cat. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. Steve Dillon is right up there with Sam Keith. Well, again, the cat works best when it's stylized on these pages, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good call. And so Jesse also gets uh, scratched or bit or something for his trouble, which begins the animosity between both him and Cassidy and, and this cat. Right. Speaking of animosity, we go to the hotel room where Star and Featherstone are working. Yeah, and Star is complaining that Hoover isn't very good at finding whores, which right. to it is a great surprise to no one. Well, Featherstone then points out that Hoover doesn't have any experience locating prostitutes. It's not something the Grail usually requires. The pressures I operate under can only be relieved by regular and sordid sex, Featherstone. I make no apologies. In the meantime, they are working on Jesse Custer's file, but they don't have access to get it. They don't have the codes to get at Jesse's file, and they have Puissant's access codes. He's the number two man in the Grail. So, yeah, as a matter of fact, they're not even sure the Grail has a file on him at all. It may be that the Grail knows nothing about the guy and it's only the All-Father himself who has a personal interest. Right. And that personal interest seemingly goes back before Genesis, since he has a picture of him as a 12-year-old. That's right. Now, it turns out that the Grail keeps track of religious phenomena, and so they put out a watch order on Jesse about six months ago. Right, but they've been watching him longer and harder than usual. So 
Star is pretty sure that the Allfather has a special interest in him for some reason. And then Featherstone takes a special interest in Star's story. Yeah, and he explains that she seems very capable and he's very glad that he chose her. He could tell by the fact that she's put in six complaints in the last however many years that she wants to change the Grail from within. As I told you, I intend to save the Grail from itself. Star explains that the Grail protects the most important human bloodline on Earth, and has done so for 1,946 years. Four years from now, that protection is going to pay off. They're sure? Armageddon begins in 2000 AD? That's the forecast, and if it doesn't happen naturally, the Grail will jumpstart it. Now at that time, the child they are protecting will be 16, and basically, when all the governments fail to handle Armageddon, the Grail is supposed to reveal the Messiah and take over the world. But he has no faith in the child to be able to do this. The masses will look to him for a miracle, raising the dead, water into wine, and do you know what's going to happen then? I've seen the child. The masses will be lucky to get water into urine. But, Star says, someone will have to give his blood and suffer for humanity's sins. I believe it should be Reverend Jesse Custer. So, back at Greta's place, Cassidy and Jesse are still chasing the cat. They have a conversation that implies that Cassidy has experience propositioning men. Right, yeah. Jesse mentions turning down a guy for sex once, and Cassidy says, You didn't thump him, did you? He was probably just fucked off at you. Sure, you know what it feels like when you get turned down. <laughs> oh, I love Cassidy. At this point, the cat attacks them from behind. This is a vicious attack by a really preternaturally vicious cat. Yeah, it jumps onto Jesse's back, causing him to stumble into Cassidy, who goes flying out the window. Right, now he's already established that they better not open the window, or he'll go up like the 4th of July. Right, we haven't mentioned it in a little while, but Cassidy's a vampire. Yes. And he can't go outside during daylight hours. Right, sun, bad. Yeah. Speaking of a person who never gets outside, we then go to Jesus Desaad's mansion where he is riding a bicycle naked down the hall. Apparently clothes are just not even a thing that he bothers to do in his life. Comes a pale rider. Right. And he arrives at a dining room where several butlers in uh, leather thongs are preparing a meal. Right, they're dressed as butlers from the waist up, but below the waist they're wearing only leather thongs, and he uh, apparently parks his bike between one of the butt cheeks. That seems really unnecessary. Yeah, this whole page is kind of unnecessary. It's really just here to show us a little bit of Jesus de Sade's lifestyle and remind us, in case we didn't read the previous issue, that he's throwing a big party soon. Right, he's throwing a big party and he's the guy for whom the heroine is supposed to be provided. Right, the boss at the top of that chain. Back at the apartment, Cassidy is looking grumpier than ever. He has apparently been pulled in from the sun, although he's got a lot of scorch marks on his face and holes burnt in his shirt. He's a little the worse for wear. But Jesse has made it up to him by putting the cat in the toilet with a plant on the lid to keep it in. This is obviously horrible animal cruelty and is not endorsed in any way by 
the Vertiguys podcast. Right. That said, that cat was fucking asking for it. That cat was an asshole. <laughs> Worth noting, this page does not have a drawing of a cat on it, because the cat is within the toilet and cannot be seen. We have to presume the presence of the cat based on circumstantial evidence. Yeah, it's not exactly Schrodinger-level mystery here. We're pretty sure where the cat is. Right. Speaking of Schrodinger, however, Jesse opens the box. Yes, he got the combination off the cat while he was putting it in the toilet, and he also saved Cassidy by throwing him a blanket, and he gets the box open, and there's dynamite and heroin in there. Yeah, the two things that they found on the Lost Island. <laughs> right, the plane with the, the Mary statues. The plane was full of heroin. <laughs> There was also a pirate ship, I remember that. Yeah, there was a pirate ship. We haven't seen a pirate ship yet in this comic. No, but we have seen a crazy French person. Oh, yeah. So in addition to the heroine, by the way, there is a business card for Bob Glover, Freddie Allen, sexual investigators. Yeah, we see that damn business card again. So this is definitely the missing heroine. This is the MacGuffin right here. Yes, yeah, the dynamite's not important to the plot, except that it was what was going to make the box blow up if they forced it open. Now we go to an awkward scene as Hoover is attempting to recruit some prostitutes. Yes. And they end up giving him the same business card as a prank. Right. As a cruel joke, they give him Bob and Freddy's card. And he calls, and they have a conversation in which they are more or less talking at cross-purposes, in which Hoover makes an appointment with Bob. For Hair Star. Right. He won't even know what hit him. Bob assures. Right, and then we immediately go to who we're having another phone conversation, this one with Harris Starr, who says, And you're sure you specified the alley? It'll be as sordid as possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I just love that he keeps using that word, and he really means it. <laughs> yeah, I recommend against continuing to use that voice for Star. You're not going to make it through the podcast. <laughs> I think it's too rough on my throat. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really scratchy. <laughs> Yeah, well, we will find out at some point that Star has a really scratchy voice. Oh, is that what they say? <laughs> I see. I, I, I had forgotten that particular detail. So Star hangs up the phone, and to Featherstone, he basically recaps the plot of the series so far. The explosion of the church in Anvil, a bunch of sheriff's deputies killed by gunshot wounds. He has access to this information through Agent Dinning's report. Remember Agent Dinning's from the first story arc? I do! And as well through a story that he got by sending an agent on a date with Detective John Toole. Ah. You put a pretty face in front of him and John Toole immediately reveals that Jesse's not dead. Well, he actually didn't. Even to the pretty face, he continued to insist that Jesse was dead. It's just that Starr didn't believe him. Ah, okay. Way to go, John Toole. Yeah, you did your best. <laughs> but he did reveal the nature of Jesse's powers, that he himself watched Custer kill a man by ordering him to die, and handed over his own sidearm when Custer ordered him to do so. Yeah, and Hairstar says that he has another source that confirms this, a source close to Custer who is in no position to lie. Mystery. Right. Now Featherstone asks if that's what brings Star to San Francisco, but he doesn't actually know Jesse's in San Francisco. We know it, but Star doesn't know it. Star is actually here to kill Puisan, because he thought Puisan was probably onto him. Yeah, I think I shot him just in time, says Star. The fact that he had been sent 
shows that he suspected Star was up to something. And he was probably looking for proof. Now, Puisan was in San Francisco following the Jesse Custer trail. And if the Allfather put his right-hand man in charge of Custer, Featherstone speculates, maybe it really is that important. Oh, he wants Custer. But not for that. I think it might be something personal. So, yeah, this little conversation between Star and Featherstone is really sort of filling in our knowledge of the Grail and showing us that they are a big fucking deal. You know, they have an incredibly sophisticated intelligence-gathering apparatus. Yeah. They have spies everywhere. As was mentioned when the angels were talking about them, they just seem to know everything. Yeah. So we are almost to the end of the comic book, and this is the first time the Tulip shows up. Right. Jesse goes back to the hotel room and has a little conversation with Tulip about how he got drunk, got in a fight, and slept at Cass's girlfriend's place. Basically fills her in on the plot and says that they are looking for whoever gave Greta the heroin to go break his legs. <laughs> yeah. Tulip says, I think he's a bad influence on you, which causes Jesse to laugh out loud. Meanwhile, the bad influence is sleeping off at Greta's place when Bob and Freddy break in. Yeah, he doesn't have to look for them very hard because they come to him. Right, now they were sent by the guy who imported the heroin, which is a gangster named Gallico. They got the location of Greta's apartment from Gallico, and they're here to find the missing heroin. Cassidy hides under the bed, just like we saw on the cover. Yeah, but unlike on the cover, they have no idea he's there throughout their visit. Yes, and that's when Freddy finds the cat stuck in the toilet. And he lets it out. Right, these guys are really shocked and horrified to discover that some sick bastard put a cat in the toilet. And immediately the cat starts to hiss at Cassidy, very nearly giving him away. But it looks like Bob and Freddy leave without finding him. And it looks like they've got the heroin? Yep, they've found it, they've taken it away, and Bob is getting ready for the other job that he's been contracted to do. Right. So Cassidy finds his way to a bar where he meets up with Jesse and Tulip. He was stuck under the bed with the sun shining down for six hours, unable to do anything about Bob and Freddy, but now he's free and he wants to go kick their asses. They had no right putting temptation in Greta's way like that. His reasoning is a little bit spotty. Greta is, after all, the one who used the heroin, but he wants to kick the asses of the suppliers anyway. Yeah, it's sort of thin, but it gives us an excuse for the plot that's going on here. And did you notice that Cassidy is wearing the exact same hat as Bob has? Oh, yeah. Bob still has it later, so he didn't take it from Bob, but it's drawn exactly the same. Yeah, that's an interesting point. And Jesse even makes fun of it. Yeah. And they talk a little bit about the picture that Cassidy had taken of the three of them. Right. Tulip asks if he has a photo of Greta, and he says he never bothers to carry around photos of people that are important to him. Right, but nonetheless, he still had the photo taken. So maybe this is kind of setting us up to think that perhaps Cassidy is the Grail's source? Yeah, that did occur to me, to wonder if the reason he takes unnecessary pictures would be to send them to the Grail. Maybe he's the spy. But Jesse has a different idea. He'll keep it. I saw him this morning when he talked about Greta. He doesn't like folks knowing, but underneath that I could give a shit exterior is one soft goddamn heart. Tulip says, I'll believe it when I see it. And then she razzes Jesse for flirting with the waitress. 
Yeah, but then Jesse and Tulip kiss. They're obviously getting on a lot better than back in the first arc when they had similar interactions with waitresses. Yeah, that's right. So, cut to Hoover with Featherstone in the car. It looks like they just dropped him off at the alley. Right? Yeah, that makes sense. And then uh, Featherstone mentions that Star is much more professional than Puisan, who was always putting his hand on her ass, to which Hoover is offended that she said ass. <laughs> yeah. She also says of Star, he's cold, ruthless, and more than a little patronizing. On the other hand, I doubt he's ever failed in an assigned task. Now, just then, Hoover gets a call from a cop that works for him on the SFPD. They have got a police report of a brawl in a bar, and the barmaid said one of the two guys who won the fight wore a minister's collar, and his buddy was calling him Jesse. Okay, so the Grail now knows that Jesse is in San Francisco. Meanwhile, we find Star in a dirty alley. Extremely sordid. Yes. And Bob shows up. You Star? Yes, but... I'm Bob. Let's get down to it, then. But, but, but you're a man. No, stop. What? <laughs> so, yeah, so this issue ends on a really un unfortunate instance of rape as comedy. Yeah. Bob and Star are clearly confused as to the purpose of their unintentional meeting, and Bob is apparently aggressive enough that the message doesn't get through to him. He continues to rape Star in any way. Well, so he said on the phone that the person who was arranging the job wanted it done to someone. Ah, I see. So he understands Hoover as having hired him to do this to Star. Right. That, I guess that makes it make a little more sense. Yeah, it's not just that he thought that Star hired him and, you know, he doesn't take no for an answer once they get started. Right, it's like, okay. It's like he believed he was hired specifically to rape a guy. Okay. It's, but, it's still farcical, and, and it's still kind of gratuitous. Yeah, it's really, it's really gross. This is the first and possibly the most egregious of a long chain of humiliations that are going to befall Hair Star. Yeah, and most of them I have no problem with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, he's a shitbag of a character. I mean, he's a very memorable character, but he's also someone we, we love to hate. And so we don't mind that, you know, shit is always kind of falling on his head. But... This particular incident is just an example of a really unfunny rape joke. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there are times that Star works really well as a main, if not the main villain of the series. Do you think it kind of undermines him as a villain that all this weird bad shit keeps happening to him? Well, no, actually, I, I don't, because I just think that, I think that both things work really well. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that he... The fact that he continually is the brunt of misfortune works as a as a running joke. Most of the time, the cringe comedy surrounding Star works. Yeah, but the comic also really sells him as a ruthlessly effective killer. So we know to be afraid of him. Well, maybe that's the reason that this one in particular doesn't work for me. He's supposed to be a deadly international assassin and he can't fend off a two-bit hood. Yeah, it's not a great scene. But in any case, that brings us to the end of Preacher number 14. This was another exposition-heavy issue, but the exposition works so well. There's a lot of moving parts, and Garth Ennis just juggles them all expertly. Yeah, and it gets increasingly complex as we move into the rest of the story. It's kind of Guy Ritchie in that way. 
Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. So we go into Preacher number 15, Crashing the Party, written by Garth Ennis with art by Steve Dillon and a cover by Glenn Fabry. Yeah, and this cover shows us Jesus Tassad wearing a cape and very little else. He's also surrounded by perverts. He's got his dwarf butler Harcourt there. Yeah, there's a bunch of weirdos on this cover, and one of them is drinking Chateau Boo 1993, which should not be confused with Chateau Bourbou. Right. Not which is a much nicer Bourbou. <laughs> yes, indeed. And a nicer Chateau. So we open on Hair Star, looking pissed. Morning Star. Oh. Yeah, he's, he's not a happy man. And, and Hoover has something important to tell him. But first, Hoover must die. Right, there's a great panel here of Hoover obliviously smiling while Star cocks back a fist behind him. Yeah, it looks like he's planning to, to choke him and punch him at the same time. And we don't actually come back to that for a minute. It's a regular distance choke, that one. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah. So, Jesse and Cassidy, who's using a hat and coat to be out of the sun. Although he still mentions that indirect sunlight is itchy, which I thought was a, kind of a cool idea. Yeah, they are getting out of the car. They have arrived at the office of Bob Glover and Freddie Allen, sexual investigators, following the address on the business card. Yeah, Tulip is out shopping. There goes your ill-gotten gains. So long as she's happy. These are over your differences, I take it. For good. So, they want to beat the crap out of these guys, but it looks like they're going to have to get in line. The window has already been broken. They find the place being ransacked by a mobster named Gallico. This is the first time we've seen Gallico, but they've talked about him. He's the guy who imported the heroin and gave it to Bob. No, I'm sorry, and it got stolen by Greta. Right? Well, definitely somebody gets thrown out a window. What? Somebody gets thrown out a window on this page. It says, Crashing the Party. Yeah, so this is our title page. Gallico's mook looms over Jesse, and then the next panel is him flying out a window. Gallico's mook is wearing a very nice suit. Uh, I guess Gallico has a pretty nice suit on, too, but, but his, mook, his mook is very well dressed. Well, he's got kind of a confetti tie, though. Yeah, that's, that tie is awesome. You like that tie? I would totally wear that tie. Oh, I thought it looked a bit tacky, but okay. You know what? Fuck you. <laughs> well, maybe if I saw it in real life. I don't know. Or maybe if I saw Glenn Fabry drawing that time, it would look completely different. <laughs> yeah, but I do like the comic timing on this page, and we're going to see incidents like this a couple more times in this story arc. And really going forward, whenever they do comic violence, I mean comedic violence, they've got a nice sense of timing, uh, Steve Dillon and Glenn. Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon. Yeah, Glenn doesn't have a lot to do with it. I assume you mean Glenn Fabry, and not like, not like the kid from Mad Men. Glenn Bishop? Right, no, yeah. He was not involved in the production of this comic. Although he could, being 45 or something this year. Right. In any case, so we cut back into the Grail offices, where Hairstar is continuing to try to murder Hoover. And he says, you turned me into a homosexual. But Featherstone says she's pretty sure that's not how it works. She finally manages to distract Star from killing Hoover by telling him, we found Custer. What? He's here in San Francisco. 
She tells him about the bar fight and the voice that you have to obey, which I don't think Jesse actually used in that scene, unless she was referring to his normally compelling voice. He's a pretty charming guy. I think he might have used it. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what? He did use it on Cassidy. Yes, that's right. The barmaid overheard him using the word God on Cassidy. And that's why Cassidy wasn't mad, because he knew that it was important that the word of God be used just then to move the plot forward. Ah, that explains so much. Anyway, it turns out that the report on Custer came from Hoover, so Star is forced to acknowledge that Hoover has some value and not kill him. Yeah, what am I supposed to know about dealing with prostitutes? Shut up! If I can't kill you, Hoover, I'm going to kill the bag of shit who did that to me. I have his address, and you're coming too. That... That... Motherfucker? Featherstone! <laughs> Hoover's reticence to swear is funny every time. Yeah, I would also point out during this scene they're wearing the same matching outfits. Oh, yeah. Which was... I guess they've been doing that pretty consistently, but this was the first time that I actually noticed it not on the cover of a comic book. Mm, okay. But rather in the pages themselves. So we find Gallico tied up in Bob and Freddy's office being questioned by... Cassidy and Jesse. Cassidy asks Jesse why he doesn't just use the word on people instead of breaking their fucking arses. Jesse says, wouldn't do to get too reliant on a thing like that, Cass. Like I found out to my cost a while back. Referring to the fact that the power didn't work on Jody. He had been empowered by God to resist it. Indeed. So Cassidy breaks into a Nazi impression and starts beating up Gallico. And yeah, this is pretty random, but Gallico gives his name and what he's doing here. Basically came to kill Bob and Freddy for beating him up when they were looking for the heroin yesterday. And that pisses off Cassidy, who's mad that his girlfriend got killed by the heroin that everybody's looking for, and demands to know where it was supposed to be taken. Gallico refers to her as a fucking junkie coos, which... Cassidy does not like one bit. Right, so Gallico reveals that it was intended for Jesus Desaad, a weird motherfucker throwing a big party tonight, and that the address is in Bob and Freddy's Rolodex. And at that, Cassidy throws him through the wall. Right. Just in time for Star and Hoover to show up. Well, I guess Cassidy and Jesse had enough time to leave before Star and Hoover show up. Right, so they're here to kill Bob and Freddy, but they don't find them. They do find Gallico stuck in the wall. They pull him out, and Star interrogates him yet again. He's having a remarkably bad two days, three interrogations in two days. Fuck you! I just got thrown through a goddamn wall! I need a paramedic now! Very true, Star says, and shoots him in the knee. But what you really need is to tell me your name. So Gallico reveals that the Reverend and his buddy were looking for Bob and Freddy, and they're going to be at Jesus Desaad's party tonight. Everything is falling into place. Right. Now, Star and Hoover are a little surprised that their two goals have dovetailed just this way, and as they're distracted by that, Gallico pulls his gun. Yep, and Hoover shoots him in the face in just the nick of time, with a look on his face that implies that he has never shot anybody before. Right, and does just, not care for it. And just on the next page, he says he's never fired a gun at a person in his life. Just did it without thinking. That sounds like you all right, Hoover. 
Right, so Star decides to go after Custer at the party, while Hoover throws up. Ah, yes. Meanwhile, Jesse is in the hotel room watching The Wild Bunch. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I like that. Tulip asks for his attention, and he replies, Is it real important, babe? Wild Bunch are fixing to kill half of Mexico. That's a good movie. I watched it for homework when I was in high school. Oh, yeah? Indeed. That's when you saw it, too. Oh, I didn't know you were watching it for homework then, but it is a good movie. Yeah, I wrote a paper on it. And they do kill an awful lot of people at the end of the film. Kill a lot of people in that movie. And as you can see, there's a, the gunfire is constantly coming from the TV throughout this scene. But Tulip reveals the dress that she has purchased for the occasion. And that manages to get Jesse's attention away from the screen. Yeah, this is a... This is a cutaway that I've not seen before, as we zoom in on the TV and the gunfire coming from it. And that brings us to Asus Desaad's Weird Party. Oh, my cock runneth over. How I love to see you here, pursuing that rarest bird of all, pure pleasure, seizing it from the very air and biting deep into its breast. Enjoy the party, my Gamora people. Everything you want is here. Drink it. Eat it! Inject it! Fuck it! And Freddy says, What a totally self-obsessed little shit! Chop you! Right, so they delivered the heroin in the nick of time. Dasad is grateful and... But not that grateful. No, not super grateful. Not grateful enough to really want them at his party. Now Bob decides that he'd like to stick around and, and maybe get to bugger somebody today. Well, yeah, and he wants to make contacts. Yeah, I suppose that's true, too. He already said if they get this job right, they're set up for life. So I think he is hoping to bugger somebody, but he also is hoping to network. Oh, see, when he said he'd be set for life, I thought he meant set up with weird sex, because that's what Jesus decided is a purveyor of. No, no, they still are very much interested in money as well. Because remember, that was the same conversation where he was talking about how he doesn't want to have to go back to being a rent boy. Oh, that's true. That's true. That's true. Now, Desaad is distracted by the appearance of a woman named Devi, who he hopes to have the pleasure of urinating on later. <laughs> she says, of course, Jesus. Right. It's a little silly. But we also learn that Desaad and Harcourt met when Harcourt was acting on a porn film Desaad produced called Sex Dwarf. Uh, yeah, yes, indeed. Yeah, so anyway, so long as Bob doesn't bugger anybody important, only staff members, Desaad allows them to stay, and he goes off to enjoy the party. And that's when Cassidy, Tulip, and Jesse show up. Yes, and the doorman, who is very fancily dressed and has pauldrons and asks for their invitation, and Jesse does not use the word of God, but instead uses brute physical force. Once again, they talk about psychology, as Cassidy suggests that you reckon your boyfriend maybe needs a wee chat with his inner child. Inner child? Oh, how you hate that sort of shite, don't you? You might just be in denial, but maybe you need to get some downtime and really try to process your issues. Tulip interjects, the worst one I ever heard, and I swear this is true, was from this Santa Monica asshole I knew in college. This is real, okay? I think it's time you took a swim in Lake U. No! Nobody fucking says that! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
So uh, once again, this sort of reinforces what I saw as it, it's not that they have a problem with psychology when practiced by professionals. Mm -hmm. It's self-help book pop psychology that they hate, and rightfully so. Right, okay. And the kind of people who psychoanalyze people that they meet on the street as a form of a form of dismissal or a form of manipulation. Yeah, you know, this was written in the 90s, but sadly that sort of thing is no less common today. And in fact, I think maybe pop psychology has even become more legitimate in most people's minds. Mm. So they walk into the weird orgy. Cassidy mentions that this is like one of Bill Burroughs' parties. You knew William Burroughs? Ah, oh, he put me in junkie, sort of. And they split up to search the party for Desaad and the sex detectives. Yeah, but they agree to meet up in half an hour, but before they get a chance to split up, Cassidy has to patronize Tulip, and she is forced to remind him that she can take care of herself. Right, he asks, will she be okay on her own? And she replies, you could try asking her, and I can take care of myself just fine, thanks. <laughs> Jesse smiles at, uh, at how well she sort of put Cassidy in his place with that one. Yeah, so they walk around the party where all kinds of weird shit is happening. People banging on every horizontal surface. And you don't, you don't like, mean that they're like banging their fists on every oh, horizontal surface. No. <laughs> <laughs> they're just drums. That's actually what the whole party's about. <laughs> Dr. Worm was invited. <laughs> oh, man. I love Dr. Worm. I think you mentioned Dr. Worm in your latest episode of your other podcast as well. You've got a Dr. Worm theme going on. You keep going back to that Dr. Worm well. Yeah, hey, he's getting pretty good, but he can handle criticism. He can. He handles it very well indeed. So I, I just want to point out that, like, unlike Bob... Jesse and Cassidy and Tulip are all just kind of casually above all this. They're not tempted at all. Yeah, yeah, they're not fascinated. If anything, they have a, a bit of disgust, but, but they try to keep an open mind. Something worth noting on this page is that we get an allusion to Cassidy's age. Hmm? He says, my ma was in her own right, and that was 90 fucking years ago. Hmm. Yeah, so they have a little conversation here about women's lib. Cassidy's mom used to blot our doll with the frying pan when he came home bollocksed. And then Jesse goes into a rant about how he hates it when people refer to their significant other as their partner. Now, I looked this up a little bit. It does turn out that this usage was on the rise in the 80s and 90s. He was talking about a contemporary trend. Yeah, people still do it today. Yeah, and there's a number of reasons, too. It's inclusive to all kinds of relationships. It's a way to imply a more permanent relationship when marriage is off the table. And some people feel that husband and wife are unequal roles. The way I figure it, a partner someone covers you when you're busting up a crack house or taking a herd up the old Chisholm Trail. Kojak has a partner. Aye, well, speaking of the old Chisholm Trail, we better start looking. <laughs> I'll see you back outside, and we can reassess our options bilaterally, all right? Fuck you. Uh, now, just <laughs> jump back a second to the age... Thing. Did the thing where Cassidy says he's the same age as the century, did that already happen? I believe that happened the first time they were in New York. Okay. So we don't need a hint of Cassidy's age. We already know it. Right. So I guess that's he's not about important. about 96 right now. All right. I think Jesse probably wasn't intending to talk shit about gay communities because the usage wasn't so omnipresent in those communities and distinctive to them at the time. Oh, no. Well, you, you, well he's, he specifically points out that 
when a guy is seeing a girl regular or living with her, that's that's the usage that is his, what he calls his pet hate. Right. Yeah. Now Tulip finds her way into the ladies' room, where she manages to get some information. Yeah, she very nearly gets a cucumber as well. I mean, where do you get off brandishing cucumbers at total strangers? Now, in comic book, this is totally in context. I just think it's a great sentence on its own. <laughs> yeah, and she mentions that she's looking for Jesus to side, and the woman with the cucumber says that he's tall and thin and very pale, and he's very good-looking, and she'd really know it if she saw him. And I think that the cover that we saw him on really reinforces that. Right. Like, you can kind of tell that he's... The way that Fabry drew him, that he's like this... He's this very luminous kind of he's kind of creature who... Intended to be something of an Adonis. Yeah, he stands out from the rest of the crowd. Mm. <laughs> this page is something of a montage of people looking for Jesus. We get one panel of Cassidy talking to this woman. She says, bite me! I want you to bite me! <laughs> no, you don't! <laughs> right, and then Jesse looks into a room where a man is shouting, Go on, you sluts, do it! And is surrounded by sheep. Forget it. <laughs> At this point, Jesse runs into Jesus himself, although he doesn't quite know that that's who it is. Jesus goes into a speech on the pursuit of excess. We in the Gomorrah people are interested primarily in physical gratification, in smashing through the boundaries of base and boring everyday society, in tasting of forbidden fruit and luxuriating in our defiance of an old defeated god. You mean you fuck a lot. Mm. Yeah, Jesus is sort of pleasantly surprised to find a reverend at his party, although he didn't invite him. And he goes on to explain, I suppose the real reason we do this is excess. It's singular pursuit, almost as an end in itself. Jesse takes the time to say, nothing wrong with that, as long as they ain't hurting anybody. Yeah, but Jesus seems to disagree. But then it wouldn't be excess, would it? After all, the very reason I throw these little soirees is... Wait a second. This is your party? Why, yes. Your Jesus decide? I assume someone had told you. So Jesse goes off to fetch Cassidy, tells Jesus to wait right there. Right, and at this moment we pan outside the window to where Hare Star is looking through his electro-binoculars at a couple of Banthas, but he doesn't see any sand people. That is not what happens. Instead, he's looking at the party. He doesn't see any sand people. Well, okay, yeah, but he doesn't see any Banthas either. All right. And he's there with the whole Extreme Sanctions team. Hoover is there as well, and they're just getting ready to crash the party. I want Custer and Bob located immediately, and I want them both alive. I want this operation to be quick and quiet, but don't let that stop you killing anyone who fucks with us. Let's go. Right, so that brings us to the conclusion of issue 15. Now, my question here is, at this point, we don't yet know that Jesus decide is a child molester, mm. which we will find out. How do we feel about our heroes wanting to beat the crap out of him just for using heroin, you know, before we know that he's into non-consensual stuff as well? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. The characters are on their way to kick his ass for something that's not super his fault. He ordered some heroin and Greta was supposed to deliver it, but instead she used it in an overdose. Right. I mean, and being part of the drug trade is a pretty shitty thing to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, being a, even like him, he's not, you know, 
it's not his business per se, but he's a large scale consumer. Yeah. Yeah, that is shitty. But I just think that, see, it's part of a larger pattern in this story arc. And we could talk more about this when we come to the end of the episode. Mm -hmm. But it's part of a larger pattern of his unconventional lifestyle, you know, and his sort of hedonistic sexual interests being treated as inherently wrong. Mm -hmm. Even before we find out that, that he's a rapist. Yeah, well, at this point, they're mostly by coincidence. Because the heroes are looking for him, not really for that stuff. No, but it fits a larger pattern of their sort of, of their sort of disdain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I will want to talk about that more at the end of the issue, I think. Alright, well, for now, let's jump into Preacher number 16, Judgment Night, named for the incredibly memorable Dennis Leary performance, no doubt. That's probably it. <laughs> Same writer, same artist, and same cover artist, Glenn Fabry. Here we have Tulip in proper shooting position. Yeah, and she's drawn very anatomically here. And doesn't particularly look like Tulip. Hmm. You don't think so? I mean, we can tell she's definitely wearing the same dress and the same earrings as we already saw Tulip wearing in the previous issue. So it's definitely her, but facially I didn't, I didn't really think so. Uh, I think that's fair. Yeah, this just looks a little bit generic, like it was modeled off a, off a movie character or something. Mm. Incidentally, here she's holding a revolver. We've already seen that in the comic book she has a semi-automatic. I'm Eric, a.k.a. Revolver. <laughs> well, they probably put it in there for you, then. <laughs> Must be. Okay, so we open on a guy in boxing gloves and boxing shorts. And he is dancing around to Let's Twist Again, the Chubby Checker song, only he's singing it as Let's Fist Again. Okay. And that is the second time in the story arc we've had the same pun, because the name of the punk club where they found Cassidy was called Fisted Sister. Oh, no. <laughs> same pun twice, writing jail, Garth. <laughs> you think that when this comic was coming out that it was often described as twisted and two-fisted? God, probably. Maybe that's where he got it. <laughs> Just the easy pun the journalists make. <laughs> Wizard magazine. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jesse and Cassidy have arrived back where Jesse saw the sod, except now he's gone. Yeah, and this is where he mentions... Yeah, it turns out these Gamora people fucks own half the West Coast. So if one or two of them maybe get a little bit damaged, it ain't going to trouble my conscience any. Yeah, and he also kind of suggests here that too much money and too much time are what leads people to this kind of depravity. So while they're looking for Desaad, Star and his goons walk in the front door looking for Jesse. What are these people doing? They're having something called sex, Hoover. And apparently enjoying it immensely, as I myself used to before a certain fucking moron arranged to have me anally raped. Right. Now, Star is more or less glad to see this weird orgy because can you really see any of these people calling the police? It was terrible, officer. There I was, jamming a syringe full of heroin into my eyeball while filleting a billy goat when these men burst in and started shooting people. Aren't we even safe at our own orgies anymore? And he says, spread out. 
find Jesse Custer, and Tulip happens to overhear this. Right. Now, at this point, we find Bob basically complaining that nobody at the party is having sex with him, and Cassidy recognizes his voice. Now, remember, Cassidy has not seen the sexual detectives. He just overheard them when he was hiding under the bed, which is how he knows Bob's voice. Yeah, that's right. And Bob here is given a British accent to make him a little more distinctive. Meanwhile, Jesse punches a guy for being French. Yeah, that is pretty much what happens on the bottom row of panels of this page. The less said about that exchange, the better. Anyway, Jesse runs into Jesus again. I thought I told you to stay put. You did. I ignored you completely. Last time you're going to do that, boy. Now, he finds that Jesus is about to shoot a porn movie. Don't go in, Jesus warns him ineffectually. There's a man and a woman on the bed. Holy shit, are you making a goddamn porno movie? Jesse takes that in stride until he sees a young boy wrapped in a towel, also apparently about to take part in the shooting. Yeah, and he is crying. Uh, you'll remember I mentioned the pursuit of excess. So this, this can't come as much of a surprise, can it? Better cover the boy's eyes, girl. I don't want him seeing this. And Jesse punches Jesus de Sade in his face. Yeah, sends some teeth flying. Harcourt pulls a gun to try to defend de Sade, and Jesse orders him, eat it. And with that, we cut back to a different part of the party, where Hoover is looking around. He's quite disgusted. Yeah, now, Tulip suggests that they go somewhere more private. But why? Because if you don't tell me what you want with Jesse Custer... Because if you don't tell me what you want with Jesse Custer... Because if you don't tell me what you want with Jesse Custer, I'm going to blow your fucking brains out. She almost captures Hoover, but they are interrupted by Star, who immediately starts firing at Tulip, and she immediately starts shooting back. Oh man, it's a full-on firefight. It's fucking awesome. Meanwhile, Cassidy interrupts Bob and Freddy and prepares to give them the hiding of your lives. So are you the son of a bitch who put that poor cat in the toilet? Fuck the cat! I possibly, but we'll leave that for later. You're not dealing with some pair of poofters, son. We're hard men. Bob Glover. Freddy Allen. Sexual investigators. <laughs> and Cassidy replies, fucking wankers more like, as he puts his fist through Freddy's teeth. And then he can't get it back out. Right, so he is now pinned down by Freddy, who falls to the ground with Cassidy on top of him. I just want to... The implication here <laughs> is that Freddy is so experienced at fellatio. See, I didn't read that at all. I thought it was just a really hard punch. Okay, maybe that makes oh, sense. Oh, no, I'm pretty sure. It's like... Because Bob says... That's it, Freddy lad. Hold the bastard. Right. Which leaves Cassidy oh, vulnerable awful. to Bob's favorite kind of attack. Okay, true believer. It's bugger in time. Oh, man. Oh, my God. That is a reference to the Everloving Blue Art thing. Yeah. True believer being Stan Lee's catchphrase, and it's clobber in time is the things. Oh, boy. Tulip is behind a large plant in a vase. And a bunch of Grail mercenaries run in. Front sight. Front sight. Here we go. We have a really tight two-page gunfight sequence. 
Yeah, where she manages to, manages to take all of them out without taking a hit herself. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, and it's probably worth mentioning that a bunch of the rich perverts get shot in the crossfire. Yeah, that's right. She manages to avoid all the bullets that are heading her way, but some other people are not so lucky. Well, it's, I guess it's more of a four-page gunfight sequence. Yes, indeed. And then we cut back to the other fight, where Cassidy manages to turn the tide, and he defenestrates Bob. Right, who lands with his pants still down on a car in the driveway. For those keeping track at home, that is the third defenestration in this story arc. The only one left fighting Tulip is Star, and, and she manages to get a hit on him, blowing off one of his ears, but she's out of bullets and he's not. This is the first of many injuries that Star will sustain over the course of the series that will alter his appearance in various ways. He's got a gun to Tulip's head, and he says, I want Custer. I know you know him. You will tell me where he is, or I will blow your face off the front of your skull. Where is Jesse Custer? Cassidy hears this and feels he has no choice. Tulip! No, don't. He's just, it's me. I'm Jesse Custer. God damn it. <laughs> it's written like, God damn it. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's how we know that Cassidy is now doing Jesse's voice. Yeah, he's doing a Jesse Custer impression. Right, so, Star and his remaining goons take off with Cassidy and Tulip. Meanwhile, Jessidy... Jessidy! <laughs> fucking, <laughs> fucking bullshit! God damn it! God damn it! <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesse is thoroughly beating Jesus de Sade. He orders the woman to call the police and tell them everything about this party and... Using the word of God. Yes, and to spend the rest of your life making sure this boy gets brought up decent. And he continues without using the word of God. And you tell this white-skinned son of a bitch, the day he gets out of jail, no matter what, I'll be waiting. Yeah. And this is, I mean, obviously, like, Jesus is a terrible person, child rapist, deserves whatever he gets. But the focus on his extremely bruised and bloodied face, and, you know, the fact that Jesse single-handedly did that himself is pretty... Pretty gross. Pretty extreme. Mm. You want to go into this now, or do you want to wait until the end of the issues? We only have a couple of pages to go. Okay. So, as Jesse steps out of the house, he is nearly run over by the Grail van. One of two, I should say. And in a split second, he recognizes Tulip, with tape over her mouth, being held in the car. Right. So he commandeers the car that has Bob on it. Now... Star is explaining to the captive Cassidy, he's in one van, Tulip's in the other. He says, I can tell you right now that you will never see her again. Your only chance of ensuring her survival, however, is to do exactly what I tell you. Because one word from me into this radio, and my men will leave her dead in a ditch. Star is very much like Grandma, basically. He might want Jesse to be the new messiah, but he has no qualms about making an enemy of him in order to get there. That is true. Star, we see here, is capable of immense cruelty, but I think in a way that he's not as sadistic as Grandma, just ruthless and pragmatic. Yeah, he, he's ruthless, but he wants dominance for his own ends, not for dominance's sake. Mm -hmm. So Hoover notices 
Bob yelling for help as Jesse drives up beside him and rams their van off the road. Bob goes flying. And Jesse makes short work of Hoover. Yeah, but Featherstone pops out of the car with a gun on his face. Back slowly away from the van. Keep your hands in plain sight. Make no attempt to speak. Suddenly, a pair of legs wrap around her head and slam it into the side of the car, knocking her out. It's Tulip! <laughs> yes, Tulip can take care of herself. And once again, she and Jesse are reunited. Bob's hanging from a tree, saying, oh, fuck. And as Jesse basically ties up Featherstone and Hoover, takes them captive, Tulip explains that Cassidy is now in disguise as Jesse being held captive by the Grail. You better get used to the idea, Reverend. Your life has changed forever. Yep, he's already got a plane ready, outbound for Masada. Meanwhile, Jesse has packed Tulip, Featherstone, and Hoover in the car and is taking off after them. Featherstone swears that they'll never tell where Jesse Custer is, to which he replies, I am Jesse Custer, you dumb shit. You fucks didn't get Custer. What you got now is something else entirely. Featherstone warns him against picking a fight with the Grail. You haven't a hope. You'll never see him again. We work for the most powerful organization ever to exist. We own presidents. We run countries. We walk between the raindrops. Believe me, you couldn't choose a more lethal opponent without taking on God Almighty. Well, that suits me just fine. Next, Jesse versus the Grail. All right, so that was kind of a weird arc, kind of... I don't want to say aimless, because the characters did have a clear goal, but it was kind of a, kind of an irrelevant goal. Yeah, I, I wouldn't exactly, it, it's not, it's not like it was a meander, you know, it had a direction from the very beginning, we knew that it was headed towards this big party. What it was, though, was kind of a lot of build-up. I mean, it's, it's a four-issue story arc, mm. and the first two issues are very exposition-heavy. Yeah. You know, there's just a lot of table-setting disproportionate to the amount of payoff that we actually get. I think to the extent that it feels maybe a little inconsequential, if the hero's motivations feel a little weak, I think that's because what Ennis and Dylan were trying to do here was kind of a farce. Well, certainly the Grail feels important, you know? Yeah, and, and once the... the Grail shows up at the party, things get serious in a hurry. Right, yeah. And the Grail is definitely formidable. Well, like, like I mentioned earlier when we were talking about Star as a character and the fact that he's continuously the butt of jokes while also being clearly a lethal adversary. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of what happens with the Grail is just kind of silly and funny. Nonetheless, they are a very powerful, very serious organization. That's, right, and that's going to make a big here. adversary for Jesse. Right, and we do get to see here that they have virtually unlimited resources, that they have incredibly long-reaching aims, that they are a big deal for the rest of the series. Yeah, that's right. But I found the way that the moving parts interact regarding Jesus and the sexual investigators and Jesse and Cassidy looking for them, all hunting each other, so to speak, rather comedic. Again, I come back to the Guy Ritchie comparison. Right. He creates a lot of totally eccentric, really bizarre characters and bounces them off each other in interesting ways. Mm. It's maybe not the most memorable or consequential early preacher story arc, mm. but it's a solid early preacher story arc. 
There's a couple of mistaken identities and a bunch of near misses. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I think we need to talk about Jesus de Sade. Yes. So again, it's just... The comic clearly establishes Jesus as a totally villainous, awful human being. Mm. By having him involved in the production of child pornography. Right. But... I didn't like the way that even before we know that about him, he's treated simultaneously as, as a joke and as a character worthy of our loathing, just basically for having an alternative sexuality. I think maybe it's fair to call his portrayal homophobic. Now, I know he's not exactly a gay character. From the first moment we see him, he's in bed with both men and women. If he has a sexual orientation, it might be excessive. Yeah, he's Definitely. omnisexual. And he, he's into bestiality as well, which is animal cruelty. Yeah, but he is... At least one of his interests is in sex with men. And in addition, the way that he's drawn and designed, he's thin, physically unimpressive, long white hair, kind of effeminate features. Right. He's kind of a homosexual stereotype, even if he's not, strictly speaking, a homosexual. Yeah, and I didn't like the way that the comic book says and sort of has him say, well, you know, it's an orgy. Clearly you can't be that surprised that there's child porn going on, too. Right, right. As if it's inevitable that, you know, whenever consenting adults meet up to have unusual, atypical sexual encounters that there's going to be something sinister about it, inherently. Right. We complained about the homophobic undertones back in New York. This story arc is maybe even a little harsher toward, like, kinky weird sex, right? Like, Polly Bridges was having it, and he sort of needed to come to terms with himself. It was maybe portrayed even as a little sad and pathetic, but not as dangerous. Right. Yeah, whereas here I think there's the the strong implication that, like I said, kinky sex inevitably linked with something more sinister, something darker. Right. The comic does take the time to have the main character say, as long as they're not hurting anybody, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, but it's unclear how much Jesse or Garth Ennis really believe that. Well, and it's followed by Desaad saying, if we didn't hurt anybody, it wouldn't be excess. Yeah. Which is kind of ridiculous. You know, you obviously don't need to have non-consensual things going on. You obviously don't have to have underaged people involved in order to put the middle finger up to the puritanical, you know, traditional morality. Yeah. Where this story arc struck me also as taking an even harsher tone compared to New York is that Dasad's sort of frantic depravity is, I think, deliberately contrasted with Jesse and Tulip's good old-fashioned American heterosexual banging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't think that's necessarily meant to say heterosexual good, homosexual bad, so much as perhaps love good, excess bad, self-indulgence bad. Yeah, if that was what they were going for, that's much more defensible. But again, it, this just... 
it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel right, and it leaves a, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. The There's comic definitely a way to read it as the the boy and girl just doing their thing. That's perfectly healthy, but everything else is all kind of piled together in one basket that we call depravity. Again, homosexuality isn't itself vilified, but it's part of a tableau of what we call depravity. Yeah, and, and we talked about how Garth Ennis doesn't seem to have kinky sex as, like, you know, he doesn't seem to have this deep grudge against it, mm -hmm. but what he does is that he, he sort of, he repeatedly goes back to it for comedic purposes. Yeah. And, and showing it as a, as a form of human frailty wouldn't be wrong in itself. No, but it's it, there's definitely a lot of othering in the way that he yeah the way that he portrays like like you said Jesse and Tulip's good old fashioned American fun with you know versus alternative sexualities yeah 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 and, and then you've got Jesse beating the crap out of Desad at the end Desad has at that point unambiguously earned it and Jesse didn't do anything to him before he had. On the other hand, but the, the hero beating the crap out of a guy with an alternative sexuality is pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, and the pure, God, no pun intended, but the pure sadism of, of the beating that we see Jesus receive, is it's disturbing no matter what he did to deserve it. You mm -hmm. know, the, the sort of reveling in, you know, this is a, this is a fictional character. He's, he was made up. Mm -hmm. And it sort of almost seems like he was made up just to be awful enough to provide justification for us to, you know, cathartically enjoy him getting this beating. Mm. Well, well, I'm noticing this uh, line on the back of the trade paperback. Reminds readers how much fun it is to watch the good guys kick some ass. Yeah, and, and I think that that's true. I, I think that Preacher does do a good job of, on occasion you know, letting the readers have fun with the good guys kicking some ass. And when it's Tulip, you know, shooting through a heavily armed squad of grail goons, I have no problem with that. When it's, you know, Jesse and Tulip taking revenge on TC and Jody, mm -hmm. I have no problem with that. When it's Jesse beating a pervert to a pulp, you know... Well, they just use awfully close to bigoted violence. Yeah, it's... Uh, you know, I'm not saying that... I'm not saying that Jesse does anything wrong in this story arc, but... Oh, no, I wouldn't mean to imply that Ennis intended to encourage anything like that either. It just hews uncomfortably close. Yeah. Overall, I think this is a pretty strong story arc. It's, it's compelling. It ends on a hell of a cliffhanger. It's very very precise and talented storytelling, but just the implications of the Jesus Desaad character are not entirely cool. I'm sort of inclined to disagree with your assessment. I guess I didn't really enjoy most of the story. I'm glad where we're left off with the Grail, with the sheer comic insanity of Cassidy having been captured under the wrong name, and the Grail being a big major new threat. Didn't enjoy most of the story, both because it felt a little inconsequential, a little ill-motivated, and because of the uncomfortable implications of Jesus Desaad as a villain. All right. So that brings us to the end of Preacher, issues 13 through 16. 
What do we got coming up next? Next time on Preacher, Jesse and Tulip follow Cassidy to the ends of the earth. But first, next week we're back with the Sandman as Rose Walker finds herself in a gathering of collectors. Hey, if you like our show, check out vertiguys.blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. We've got lots more episodes and show notes on every episode. Remember, you can also find us on the podcasts app if you use an iPhone by searching Vertiguys. That's right. If you use iTunes, we would love it if you subscribe or write us a review. You can get in touch with us at vertiguys at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to send us questions or if you just want to chat about comic books, we'd love to hear from you. Or if you just want to toss up a short thought, there's at Vertiguys on Twitter. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks.